off. And Are many American doctors unconsciously discriminating against a part of their medical practice on a regular basis? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and this is Clinician's Roundtable. Joining me today is Dr. Pauline W. Chen, a respected liver transplant and cancer surgeon and author of Final Exam, a best-selling book in the United States. Dr. Chen shares the experience of her practice in her popular New York Times blog examining the relationships between doctor and patient. Today, Dr. Chen joins us from France. Thank you, Dr. Chen or Pauline, for coming to our program today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to be on your show. You recently wrote in the New York Times about disability and discrimination in the doctor's office. What prompted this? interesting question because what prompted it, I'd actually wanted to write about the topic for a while. I think many of us have um, a similar experience to what I had as a resident, and I remember very clearly seeing a patient, or seeing several patients who were wheelchair-bound coming to clinic, coming into the hospital, and my colleagues, all very well-intentioned, trying to examine the patient or not examine the patient because they were so befuddled in some ways uh, with, you know, how exactly are we going to move the patient over to the examining table or how am I going to examine, in this particular instance, the patient had a sore on his bottom that, that no one had examined because no one had actually gotten, lifted him out of the chair to examine his bottom. And the problem was when someone did try to do it, when physicians did try to do it, we had none of the equipment that was important to try to get the patient out of the chair. And it, what ended up happening was it, it was it was actually really quite sad. The colleague of mine who went to examine the patient had to call in several of the nurses on staff, as well as security guards to move this poor man out of the chair. And in the end, the, it, was, it, was, it was really sad. In the end, the chair had not been locked fully. So as the patient was being lifted out by all of these people, each taking a part of him, the chair slipped. And he and the security guard who was holding him fell and he fell back into the chair with his pants half off, one shoe off, and this cap that he was wearing, this black cap that he was wearing, went askew on his head. And I remember my colleague looking down and trying to look into this man's face to say that he was sorry, you know, are you okay? But stopping mid-sentence because it was just so obvious to all of us in the room that the expression on the man's face wasn't of pain or wasn't one of, it was one of utter humiliation. And that moment really just, I've never forgotten it. And so I've always wanted to write about this. But actually, after seeing that and after seeing what happens to a lot of patients of mine, patients of colleagues, when they are disabled, i really was sort of drawn to the topic and wanted to write about it. So I'd been looking through journals um, and reading articles and had never sort of come upon an article that touched upon 
this very point, you know, how difficult it was to access. There is actually some excellent research out there on healthcare disparities for this, the disabled, which I think is a really important point. But what, I, what really interested me was the whole access problem and the whole issue between patients and doctors, sort of the relationship between doctors and their disabled patients. So I found this article that, um, by Dr. Tara Lagu um, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, and it was a, what I thought was a, a brilliant piece of research. Dr. Lagu and her co-investigators called uh, about 250 practices and said that they were interested in referring a patient to those practices who was disabled, who was wheelchair-bound, and they took a patient that was one of sort of an average patient that they would see, that Dr. Lagu would see. She's actually a practicing physician. And their findings were just stunning to me and actually confirmed a lot of the suspicions that I had had or the feelings that I had had over the course of my own practice, my own clinical experience. And her findings were that a fifth, you know, 22% of the practices said that they couldn't accommodate a patient who was disabled, wheelchair-bound. So the interesting part about the paper in talking to Dr. Lagu was that one of the interesting parts was that this paper was actually not funded by any uh, funding source. She had no funding sources. That, in fact, she went, she funded the research herself. And she said that for many people who are trying to do research on healthcare disparities among the disabled, it's really, really difficult to find funding. And so, Learning that, you know, from her, I realized why it had been so difficult for me to to find more information exploring the sort of impressions I had had from my own practice. But it was quite jarring to me, the fact that um, that such a large percentage of practices, you know, this is 23 years after the American with Disabilities Act has been in effect, that so many practices were refusing to see disabled patients. Now, the other part of it that was quite interesting, I think, was that, you know, my belief, and, and I think you know this through your own experiences, is that most of us go into medicine because we really, we really care about patients. We really want to help them. And so what I thought, the other part of the paper that I thought was interesting was that, that many of the practices, when they were asked why they couldn't take this theoretical patient who was wheelchair-bound, said, you know, sort of gave responses, you know, said that they didn't have the equipment or, you know, a small percentage of, of the practices were actually in buildings that had no wheelchair access. But they responded in a way that wasn't necessarily, you know, at least Dr. Lagu said this, and I, and, and I can see this, that wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't want to see the patients, but that I think a lot of people did not realize that, um, A, they were, or did not realize that they were, they were doing something that was against the law. Yes, I understand. Uh, if you're just tuning in to us, you're listening to ReachMD Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and we're speaking with Dr. Pauline Chen about 
disparities between the disabled and what one might call normal patients. You know, I agree with you. And and also in that bit of research, it was not only wheelchair-bound people, but the fictitious patient often was described as obese, i.e., 220 pounds. Uh, and so it it wasn't only people in a wheelchair. And, you know, I agree with you. This getting on an exam, I'm an internist, and getting on the examining table was always difficult. And one of the other things, which is one of the cheapest tests that a doctor has, is to weigh a patient. Uh, imagine having a patient in congestive heart failure, chronic renal disease, and you want to know if they're gaining or losing weight and how difficult this is. After your article appeared, or after your blog appeared, uh, re- referencing this uh, th- uh, this particular problem, I was struck by another article in JAMA in which they were talking about caregivers dealing with the elderly, and that only 17% of patients who die are disabled in the last year of their life. So the number of patients we are seeing who are defined as disabled is not a small number. And maybe it's time that we begin to really redefine who is disabled and begin to reevaluate this number. How would you respond to that? Exactly. It's, it's, It's interesting because one of the people that I spoke to for this article, one of the people that I interviewed, is a physician named Dr. Lisa Iazzoni, who is a real... A, a really important figure in in research on healthcare disparities among the disabled, and she put it really well because she both she and Dr. Lagu said that you know eventually either we or someone we love is going to be disabled. That you know the probability is quite high, and so what we're talking about here is not just some theoretical patient, you know, or theoretical problem, but a problem that all of us, on some level, will encounter. And I, I thought that was really quite. Um, uh, it was an important point. Shortly after your article in the New York Times appeared, there was another article in the New York Times reporting on doctors' discrimination against patients with mental illness. And again, it seems an extension of the same thing that you were talking about. Although they talked about mental illness, they described how patients, excluding suicide, people with mental serious mental illness, have a life expectancy that's 25 years less than the normal, and that the major cause is cardiovascular disease, with many, many less interventions in this cutting-edge technology. So although you've talked about physical, the disabled also includes the seriously mentally ill as well. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it goes in many ways. Our, although we go through this incredible educational process to become physicians, to become surgeons, to become doctors, in many ways, our profession reflects many of the cultural attitudes toward different illnesses. I also think that in many ways as well that the part of the issue is that in medicine we have so much to learn in four years and however many years of training that you have 
that we all don't always aren't always able to learn about learn more about like how to treat the patient the schizophrenic patient who also has cardiac disease how do we deal with that how do we deal with that in terms of the other team members that take care of that patient so that we can best address that patient's you know chest pain at the same time the psychiatrists are addressing whatever psychiatric issues that the patient may then be having i think it's a really it's it's difficult because on the one hand i i really firmly believe that my colleagues that we all want to do the right thing for our patients but i think there are parts of the hidden curriculum of the medical culture of the culture at large that create obstacles that create preconceptions that we're not always fully aware of as well you know in terms of mental illness you know i i actually wrote about that recently as well and what i had recalled one of the things that i'd recalled and i think every one of us again has stories and memories of things that have happened during their training or during their practice but of a gentleman who was floridly psychotic when he came into the hospital who came in with a significant surgical issue and what i remember from that moment was that our response to that patient was not you know as sympathetic and as caring as we were to our patients with aids with you know heart disease with peripheral vascular disease with liver disease that we weren't always as sympathetic to the emotional pain that that patient was going through that the kind of difficulty he the kind of suffering he had gone through before that floridly psychotic act which was he actually mutilated himself but you know what kind of suffering had he been going through to have come to the point to mutilate himself and i think we had forgotten that because we were so in that moment and you know i i definitely think that our profession could do better in the way we care for those patients who are mentally ill in the way we care for patients who are wheelchair bound or disabled by whatever the cause is I want to thank you Dr. Chen for joining us today and I really appreciate your insight into this very complex problem. Oh, thank you so much Dr. Picker. It was eye-opening for me too. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you for listening.